Good morning. Uh, I have to apologize for standing here because I'm one of the organizers of the event and then I'm also speaking and I'm the first person speaking and that's just because Rania and David insisted that they wanted a contribution for me so uh, that's why I'm, I'm kicking off. Um, last week I spoke at an event with a, an interesting title, uh, What's Holding It All Together, which was a big political and metaphysical question. Uh, but for me it's bandages and, and sellotape because some things are falling apart, but I hope I'll, uh, I'll keep together this morning. Um, I have 30 minutes, so what I would like to do is to share some of my thoughts about higher education and the, the, this question, is there a place for education in higher education? And the argument I'll try to develop, and it's an attempt to, to develop an argument, is to say if, if there is a place for education in higher education, it has to center around teaching. And I want to play around with some ideas about teaching that I've also developed in, in another book I recently published but the other book that's really important and that I will be talking about is a book called The Impulse Society. Um, this is just to remind myself and maybe ourselves that there is no such thing as the university. Uh, what I still like is a paper from Pavel Zaga, which he published a while ago, in which he identifies three historical archetypes of the university. Um, one, he says, emerged in, in France, where the, the point of the university was, first of all, to educate state officials. So there you have a university that is of the state and also for the state. But there is also a, a German tradition, uh, the Humboldtian University, um, that is very much, you can say, a university focusing on scholarship or Wissenschaft, which is very difficult to, to translate into English, uh, where the whole idea is that the university is not a place where you transmit knowledge, but where you collectively generate knowledge. And to do that, you need to have a, a free space uh, in order to do that work. So you can say the state needs to secure that free space. So you have a university that's of the state, but the work it's doing is not a, a service to the state. And then Zaga says there is a, a third tradition or history of higher education that comes out of Britain. He calls it the Numanian University, which very much focuses, you can say, on the, the liberal education of individuals. Um, and it, it first of all wants to serve the individual and through that you can say society at large. Now this is a discussion in itself but it's just a, a quick way to to remind ourselves that, that the university comes out of different histories and that traces of those histories are still present in contemporary universities. So you have one line that focuses on the university's task to train a line that focuses on scholarship and research, and a line that focuses on the, the talents of individual students. And I think most contemporary universities are, are somewhere in this history and also coming out of their own history. 
And the thing that I find particularly interesting also for my argument is that these different histories all have different relationships between higher education and the state. Uh, and that is one important theme when we begin to ask what can the university be as an educational institution. If there is something common, but maybe this is a nostalgic observation, I don't know, it's maybe the idea that universities are seen as public institutions that in some way have to serve the common good. And then you can begin to ask, so what, what has happened in that history? Uh, where are we now? And I want to highlight two developments. One is the rise of mass higher education. Uh, partly the result of demographic developments, more people knocking on the door of educational institutions, partly also the result of democrat democratic developments saying everyone should have access to higher education. So you can say the contemporary university has become a more inclusive university. Um, if you put it like that, it immediately raises questions about elite versus inclusive. The optimistic reading of this history is to say, yes, the university now has a much broader reach, but you can also say um, the university is still involved in the, the game playing of creating distinctions. So if it's no longer the, the institution itself, then there are other mechanisms that create hierarchies and give some people more from their higher education than other people. League tables play an important role in that game. And there was also a, a comment there on cultural capital. We can come back to that if, if that triggers your interest. The, the line I want to pursue is a, a slightly different line, where I think the university has not just become uh, a, a mass university, but when I look at contemporary education, higher education, I also see the rise of what I call a useful university. Um, and the interesting question is, when we talk about the university being useful, you can do that in a narrow sense, or you can ask the question, what is the purpose that the university is, is serving? What I see is a, a shift where sort of the usefulness is, is less and less defined in terms of a broad public, democratic, political mission, and is more and more geared towards stakeholders. And I think that the word itself already signifies something there, that there are people who have a, a stake in the, the use of the university or the usefulness. Stakeholders sounds maybe still quite general, but you can also say, who are the stakeholders? They are the, the consumers of the university, or you could even say stakeholders are the ones who consume the university. Um, and there are individuals who consume the university, who want to get something out of their education. There are groups who consume the university. Um, and there is also society that consumes the university, but society 
can be present in a number of different ways. Um, and one way in which the, the society looks at the university is through an economic interest. So the whole question of higher education as the, the education of, of the, the highly skilled workforce for the knowledge economy. Um, what you see there, and that's the shift I'm interested in, is that with the, the discourse that says universities have to be useful for their stakeholders, you see an orientation on private interests, uh, where you get this phrase that universities should give stakeholders what they want. Now this is connected, and here I'm not original at all, to analyses of, of higher education and education more generally uh, that, that try to, to understand this in terms of neoliberalism, uh, the rise of markets and consumers, higher education as a, a product that needs to be uh, assessed and assured in its quality where there is a strong discourse that says universities should give people what they want and should particularly give students what they want uh, so that students as consumers are satisfied um, and for me the word satisfaction in a sense says it all I tend to think if my students are, are satisfied I've done something wrong because I have not sufficiently irritated them or challenged them so for me satisfaction is this yeah gives a very lazy impression. You sit on the couch and you're satisfied and, and nothing happens. There are worrying consequences of that. One that I've been analyzing in my work is this whole impact of league table positions that start out as saying this is a way in which we can define, identify and, and secure and assure quality. Uh, but the, the whole league table industry becomes a, a game in itself. Um, and I think where this really becomes problematic is when a league table position is no longer taken as an indicator of quality, but becomes a definition of quality. And I encountered that in a university where I used to work, where the strategic ambition was not to become a good university, but to end up in the top 10 of the Times Higher Education League table. Um, and then when a colleague of mine asked the Vice-Chancellor, and what shall we do when we have arrived there? And, and that was a really good question to say, this is actually an empty ambition. The Vice-Chancellor said, then we'll go for the top five. So, <laughs> um, the other thing that I've also analyzed in my work is that the the focus on the, the student as a consumer moves the student more and more in the center of the whole discourse. Um, and that is not just in terms of what students want and where they are seen, but I think this also has had an impact on the understanding of the, the dynamics of education in universities. Um, and it the way in which this shift has become, for me, most visible is the, the shift from a focus on teaching to a focus on 
learning. Um, and here, in a sense, is, is both the, the point I want to make and also the, the problem I want to identify. And maybe one way to put it is to say that if we think that higher education and universities, or education more generally, is about learning, uh, you could say that as soon as we say that we have given away the institution, because learning nowadays is something you can do everywhere. You do not really need a school for it, or you do not really need a college or a university for it. And I'm pretty sure that in the offices of, of Google and Amazon probably as well, there are already plans there for them to take over learning worldwide. Um, so you can say, if, if, if we say education is is about learning and the learner is in the center of that, it raises the big question, why do we still have educational institutions? So out of this you can draw conclusions, and again I'm not the first one to draw these conclusions by saying it looks like there is something wrong with the university. The university has lost track of what it was supposed to be or is supposed to be. Some people are optimistic about that. They say this is the university of the future. It's open, flexible. It, it gives you a lot you can want 24 hours a day. And on our campus they are actually constructing a, a building based on these ideas. They call it the Flexible Learning Center. And apparently it is the future. You can also be more negative about it and say, look, we had this, this important institution that was there to work for the public good, but we have ended up with something that looks completely different. Now, that's one discussion to have, and in that discussion we can focus on the university and keep focusing on it, and there is important work to be done there, so I'm, I'm not challenging that. But we could also look in the opposite direction, and that's the line I want to pursue here and say, well, maybe it's not the university that's really the problem, but the, the problem is actually a, a problem in contemporary societies, and the university is just mirroring that or is just following that. So you can also say, might there be something wrong with where we currently are as modern societies? Um, and this is where this book, The uh, Impulse Society, comes in, uh, which I, I found a, a fascinating book. It was published a couple of years ago by Paul Roberts. Um, and the book has an interesting subtitle, What is Wrong with Getting What We Want? And what the book shows is that there is actually a lot wrong when we organize societies and our collective endeavors just on this ambition to try to get what we want. I found out recently when I was Googling for a picture of the cover of the book that this is the English edition and that the subtitle of the American edition is even more devastating. It's something like the United States in the grip of instant gratification. Uh, so this is the, the, the moderate version of it. Uh, and we all know what happens when 
the president of a country uh, operates on the principle of instant gratification, or we're seeing a lot of that. What is the, the main theoretical sort of difference here? It's the distinction between wants and needs. That's one way to put it, where you can say wants are the things we express that we want or desire. But the big question is always whether everything that we say we want, whether that is what we need. And part of the analysis in, in this book is where Robert shows that if we begin to forget this distinction, things that they are think that they are the same, or just focus on giving people what they want, we we miss something that's really crucial. Uh, a lot of what he does in the book is analyzing contemporary economies. So he says 70% of the US economy focuses on what he calls discretionary consumption. So no longer on the, the things that we need, but on the things we do not really need, but nonetheless are there. So only 30% of the economy actually focuses on the things we need, like food, housing, and so on. So you can begin to ask, so who actually needs this other 70%? Uh, a part of the argument is that he says, well, it's actually the economy that needs the other 70% in order to keep itself going. So a few quotes from the book where he asks, for example, the question how to cope with an e economy system that is almost too good as at giving us what we want. So when you think of how that works in the whole food industry, we're just getting too much food. He also says an economy that focuses so strongly on giving us what we want may not be the best economy to, to give us what we need. So he, he shows that this distinction is a really important one. Um, and that raises the question, where do our wants actually come from? Or you can put it a bit more broadly and say, where do our desires come from? Um, and this is again part of the analysis in the book, that when you look at the way in which you know, modern economies have developed, uh, there is one principle that many stick to where they say, the economy can only sustain itself when it can grow. So it's the, the belief in, in growth. Now for a long time, economies could grow um, in space. That's what we now call colonization. Uh, if you just constantly keep opening up new markets, then economies can grow. But you can say as soon as the economy becomes global, it can no longer grow in space. That's why I think Elon Musk is uh, looking at Mars to see if there are more markets on Mars where we can sell our stuff if, if we can no longer sell it on Earth. So when the economy gets stuck there, then you can ask how can economies still grow? Well, they can also still grow in time. And that's very interesting when you look at the stock market, that a lot of money has been made uh, out of time. And as long as the computers 
in one place are a bit faster than the computers in another place, you can still use that advantage to generate profit. Um, and I think that the, the most recent economic crash shows an economy that has run out of time. So it cannot speed up and, and make money out of that. So you can say that the problem we have is that global capitalism is running out of space and running out of time. And then the question is, is there still another way in which economies can grow? And the answer to that is yes, and probably we're carrying this answer in our pockets. So I confess I'm an addict as well. Um, the brilliant thing about Apple is that they do not sell mobile phones. What they sell is the desire for a new mobile phone. And that's so brilliant about their business model. So they know that if you just get the thing and the thing works, then you don't need another one. But if you keep sort of promoting that the next iPhone will be better, that is the work they really do. And once those desires have sort of ended up inside of ourselves, then the transaction of money and the thing is a very easy one. That's part of the analysis you can also find in, in the book, where Robert shows the only way in which contemporary economies can grow is by constantly giving us more desires, because then we will buy this 70% of the stuff that we do not really need. So again, some interesting quotes. Bit by bit, the marketplace has moved inside the self, because only the bottomless appetites of the self can contain all the output of a capitalist economy, which can never stop growing. So I find this really interesting because it, it shows something about how the economy is, is constantly trying to get to the level of our desires. What is new in the, the impulse society, and that's the phrase that Roberts used, is not that he says that as people we desire things, we've always had desires. Also not that we're sometimes selfish in our desires. But the point he makes is that this logic of what he calls the, the selfish reflexes of individuals, that that have become the reflexes of an entire society. And that's where his phrase, the impulse society, comes from. Um, and one point he makes there is that for a long time we had organized society in such a way that society actually provided a buffer, that it provided spaces and places that would help us to come to terms with our desires. And then he says, if those kind of institutions, for example, schools or universities, themselves become part of this economic logic of desire, then they can no longer perform this buffer function where they are places where we can actually come into a relationship with our <coughs> desires. So government, media, academia, and especially business, the very institutions that once helped to temper the individual pursuit of quick self-serving rewards, he's saying are themselves increasingly engaged in the same pursuit. And that's sort of the, 
But the issue I find really interesting that when you then begin to look back at the, the use for university, you can see that the, the university has become part of this logic of desire and giving people what they desire. And that, I, I think, explains a lot of what is, is often analyzed in terms of neoliberalism, but I think neoliberalism gives a good description of what's going on. But what I like about this analysis is that it, it also gives an interesting understanding of what's going on there. When you then ask what has disappeared from the picture or what has moved to the margins of the picture, what's the question that is no longer asked? It is the question, is what I desire or what I encounter in myself as a desire, is that what I should be desiring? Is that what I should be desiring to, to live my own life well? Is it what we should be desiring to live our collective lives well? And the, the problem is, of course, also that we live on a, a planet that already for decades has been trying to say to us, I cannot give you everything you desire. Uh, but nonetheless, we keep going back to the planet and, and project our desires on it. Um, I, I think of myself as an, an educational scholar, so I'm working towards where I think the real educational question is. And I would say that for me, this is one of the most fundamental educational questions. The question how we come into a relationship with our desires. Um, I, I put some words here, and they are big words, I am aware of it, but I'm, I'm trying to make the point. So you can say, in life we have two options. We can just accept our desires as they are and, and run behind them as fast as we can. Or we can say we meet our desires and it is our, our job to constantly figure out which of those desires are going to help us and which of those desires are going to hinder us. And then you can say if you try to do the latter, you try to exist in a kind of grown-up way, but if you just run behind your desires, you can say that's an infantile way of being in the world, although I do not really like the word infantile because that gives children a bad name. <laughs> um, and when I look around, I think that many people of our size uh, often are just running behind our desires and when I look at little people sometimes they give much more impressive examples of how they are not just driven by their desires. So for me this whole question of do our desires rule or do we always bring in this question is what we desire, what we should be desiring, that's where we find the, the educational question. And when you begin to look from this perspective back to this impulse society, there are at least two surprising conclusions. One is that you can say that the impulse society actually doesn't want us to grow up. The impulse society earns an awful lot of money, 
by keeping us stuck in our desires and not asking this difficult question. But the other point of the analysis that comes out of Roberts' book is that he also says, let's look again at all the institutions we've built up over the decades, over the centuries. Many of these institutions are also no longer helping us, are also no longer asking this educational question. Um, so when you look at the, the university or the useful university uh, from this angle, um, for me, but of course I'm, I'm just presenting the outline of an argument, a lot of things be, yeah, fall into place or, or become visible. So if, if the university has to be utterly useful for its stakeholders, for all these parties that say this is what we want and the university has to deliver, and if the university doesn't deliver that, then we'll punish the university. There you can say the university is no longer functioning as an educational institution, that actually she should help all these stakeholders or these individuals and group to figure out whether what they want is also what they need. So this is a quick way of saying when the university gets caught up in this logic, it can no longer ask the educational question. Um, and for me, all this is really visible, but this is yeah, also part of a bigger argument in this tendency to put the student at the center. Because at one level, that sounds obvious, at one level it sounds important, but before you know it, the, the focus on students and what they want uh, lets the, the educational question disappear and creates a situation where the work that's done in the university is only focusing on what students say that they want or what groups say that they want and not on, on asking this this difficult question. So I see a lot of evidence for that, but maybe I'm seeing a bit too much. So I have problems with student-centered education because I think it's, it's a manifestation of this. I have problems with this shift from teaching to learning. Uh, we could get into a whole argument about constructivist pedagogies, but I think they also run the risk of doing exactly the same. And the phrase I also, can I say it, I really hate is this idea to say we are not teachers, but we are facilitators of learning. Uh, if that's my job, I should probably look for a different job. So the big question with all of these tendencies that partly come out of good reasons, and I understand the good reasons, is that they run the risk of rather than being empowering or emancipatory, actually contribute to what you could say an infantilization of, of education. What then is the, the missing element in all that? I would call that element teaching. And I know that teaching has gained a bad name because there is teaching that is enacted as control or authoritarian control. And I think over the past half century, we have collectively 
pushed back against the idea that other people should control us. And if that is our understanding of teaching, then you can say we, we don't want more of that. But I think that just to push back teaching and say what we rather need is learning, because that gives us the freedom, that is a, a pseudo-argument. You could say that's what teenagers do. So at some point they have to push back their parents in order to create some space for themselves. But you can say that's a, a phase to go through. And if you do not go beyond that phase and at some point say, well, actually, my parents are also nice people and they messed up some things, but they, they are there and they are a reality, uh, then you keep being caught just in that sort of teenage reflex to say, anyone who wants to control me, anyone who wants to say something to me should be pushed back. So what I've been trying to, to pursue in my work is to say, actually there is a, a different meaning in teaching, where teaching is not a matter of, of control and power, but where teaching, you can say, is the moment where we encounter something outside of us, a reality that exists as it is. And that encounter is actually a, a really important encounter because you can say it's in that encounter that we begin to realize that we are not alone in the world but that we exist with other people who lead their lives and maybe are interested in, in leading lives together well. But you can also think about this planet which is not, not just a a resource where we can grab what we want but that planet is actually also a reality that puts limitations to our desires and there I think teaching becomes something else not a matter of, of control but an encounter with reality and it's that encounter that you can say puts my desires in question uh, where at least we have to think, well, is what I desire what I should be desiring? Is that going to help me? Is that going to help us together? Another phrase that you asked about Levinas, this is a, a quote from Levinas, who says, teaching is about giving you more than you contain. So what I don't like about constructivism is that it sort of assumes that we already have everything, and what I find brilliant about teaching is that teaching actually brings something to us that we didn't have. Encountering something that comes from the outside, you can say, also breaks through our sense-making. So there is more than just our sense-making. And you could also say the encounter with teaching, with, with the reality outside of us, also interrupts my identity. So I have to figure out where do I stand in relation to this. And I could even say that identity itself is, runs the risk of, of becoming an, a commodity because a lot of money is made by just telling us you can be anything you want to be if you just hand over the money. So 
teaching, you can say, is precisely the moment where we bring in this question, is what you desire, is that what you should be desiring? Not together, not together with the answer. So authoritarian teaching says, I've got a question for you, but I also already have the answer for you. Uh, but we have to disconnect the two and say the question is really important, uh, but the answer is what we need to keep working on. And to meet that question, you can say, that's a, a difficult thing, where if as a society we say that is really an important question, then we also need to think, are we giving ourselves, are we giving the next generation space and time to encounter that question, to meet that question, to work through that question? And that's why I would say we need schools, colleges, universities, as places where we are slowed down to engage with these questions. So that's what I wanted to <coughs> share with you. Um, so just three points to, to sum it up. When I look at a contemporary university, one thing I see is that it, it has to a large degree become part of the dynamics of the impulse society by focusing on what students or society wants or desires and by no longer foregrounding this educational question well, is what you say you desire or want, is that actually what you should be desiring? And for me that is the, the risk of student-centered education even if it's well intended. So it's really important to see that there is a fine line between doing good work for our students and giving up on education. And for that I would say if we want to defend or make a case for the university as an educational institution, and that's the, the question where we started, I would say the case we need to make is that for a university that puts teaching at this center, that teaches students, that teaches stakeholders, that speaks and speaks back to society, and not sort of gets into this reflex of wanting to be useful, but always asking this other question as well, um, so that we may be able to give students, stakeholders, society, things they could not have imagined they would want. Uh, and for me that would be a, a nice slogan for a university. Here you will get what you could not have imagined you would want. Uh, but I haven't yet seen universities move in that direction. So that's what I wanted to contribute to what I hope will be a, an interesting and, and rich conversation. <laughs>